This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast. Keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. It's good to be with you again, Chris. We have one of my good friends from Quinn Emanuel on the podcast today, and I'm excited to talk to her. But first, we've hit a milestone, buddy, that I think we should talk about. Actually, a couple, but the one I'm thinking of is, this is episode 90. Nine zero. Yeah, we've sure. been going at this for a while. How are you feeling? I'm hoping someday we'll get good at it. I don't know if there's an episode number we should be looking at for that. I guess it's been three plus years now, Kurt, so I think it's going smoothly, right? Glad to have yeah. seen you on our last episode when we recorded in person at the SEC, but episode 90 here, we're back in our comfy remote nations here to keep this train moving. Yeah, I know it's been a good run. Uh, listeners, pay attention because we may be doing something special around episode 100, but we'll have to keep you posted on that. But otherwise, mm. yeah, it's been a good ride. I enjoy it, Chris, and here's to many more. But for today, I think we should go ahead and get started. As I mentioned, we've got one of my colleagues at Quinn Emanuel, Dabney O'Riordan, on the program with us. She was at the SEC for a long time and ran the Asset Management Unit within the Division of Enforcement. Chris is going to tell you more about that. But one of the things we want to focus on today is, Chris, I don't know if you've seen some of the news, but there seems to be a crackdown or at least some interest at the SEC in the way investment advisors, broker dealers, and some public companies are storing or not storing WhatsApps, other kinds yes, of yeah, ephemeral messages. There, right? and, yeah. They're not of this world. Right. Uh, no, definitely yeah. been a hot topic. We've touched on a couple of times in episodes prior and happy to get a real expert in here to, to share some on that as well. But before we jump in, let's talk a little bit about our guest. Dabneo Reardon is a partner at Quinn Emanuel's SEC enforcement practice, where she focuses on securities-related government inquiries and litigation, particularly for those asset managers and private investment firms. In addition to representing clients in connection with SEC and government matters, Dabney also provides compliance counseling to those folks. Before joining Quinn Emanuel, Dabney spent more than 17 years at the SEC, where she was the longest-serving leader of the SEC Enforcement Division's Asset Management Unit, or AMU. In that role, Dabney provided advice on various rules applicable to the asset management industry, including regulation best interest, our favorite, the marketing rule, and the proposed private fund advisor rule. Dabney also led the enforcement program in the SEC's LA regional office. Dabney was known at the SEC and is still now known in private practice for developing creative, effective, and efficient solutions. Among the many feathers in her cap, Dabney conceived of and led the SEC Enforcement Division's Share Class Selection Disclosure Initiative, which resulted in settled resolutions with over 90 investment advisors in record time, just under nine months. I'm guessing that some of our listeners out there may feel less appreciative of those settlements as they came in. But Dabney, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast. Thank you both Chris and Kurt for having me on your Insecurities podcast and for the nice introduction. I will say it's nice to be part of the 90th episode. Maybe I should have held out for the 100th, but I'll take 90. Dabney, I didn't mention when we were preparing for this episode, but Chris actually owes me a beer every time you mention regulation be best interest. Episode. So expensive episode. Yeah. <laughs> yes. 
Excellent. Well, you know, Dabney, we did a terrible job of talking about your career, right? Boiled it down to 20 seconds. But we want to dig in a little bit and, and hear a little bit more about your role and what really the Asset Management Unit, or AMU, does within the Division of Enforcement. So give us a little bit more background on that. The AMU was one of many specialized units that was formed in 2010 after the 2008 financial crisis. The division leadership at the time realized that the division did not have the specialization that was needed in certain areas. For the asset management unit, it specializes in investment advisors, such as advisors to private funds like hedge funds, private equity and venture funds, as well as advisors that manage registered funds like mutual funds and ETFs and also those advisors to individuals. It's a huge industry, so not surprisingly, it was also one of the largest of the specialized units with staff located in almost all the SEC offices. The specialization was really twofold. One was to have an understanding of how the asset management industry works and the complexities therein. And an understanding, and second, would be an understanding of the laws that apply specifically to investment advisors. So you really needed a group to understand all of that, which was quite a lot. So for example, not just knowing the Securities Act and the Exchange Act, but also knowing and having a deep understanding of the Investment Advisors Act and the Investment Company Act, which apply to investment advisors in particular. Given that the asset management unit, we were the enforcement experts regarding investment advisors, I also worked very closely with the senior leadership in the other divisions on related issues. So for example, I worked very closely with senior leadership in the division of examinations regarding what they were seeing, what kind of risk alerts they should be issuing, and what they should be setting as their exam priorities. And in addition, we also worked really closely with senior leaders in the Division of Investment Management to relay what we were seeing, identify industry risks, and to work with them on drafting their proposed rules. I like to think of the AMU as the CTU of the Division of Enforcement as it relates to investment advisors. Kurt, I know that you think of Dabney as maybe being Jack Bauer there at the SEC for many years. <laughs> Specialized, <Absolutely>. tactical, <laughs> the whole deal. I'm yeah, I'm sure that's how that's I described right. her to you before the show. No, so Dabney, thanks for the background on the AMU. It's good to know a little bit more. I think I'd be interested to hear what were some of the priorities for the unit when you were there and just kind of peeking around the corner. We try to do that when we can. Do you think those things will continue to be priorities for the unit or I guess more broadly for the Division of Enforcement going forward? So the unit, we always broke it down to three different buckets and it really fell into the buckets of the investment advisors that we looked at. So it would be the advisors to registered investment companies, advisors to the private funds, and advisors to the separately managed accounts or to individuals. And so the priorities really kind of shifted between those three different buckets. One big thing was the private funds industry. Recurring themes there that the unit looked at were relating to conflicts of interest, fee allocations, fee calculations and how they were done. And those are going to be perennial issues that I think will always be part of the unit's priorities. Same things with advisors to separately managed accounts, issues regarding conflicts and how advisors are making their revenue and whether or not all of those issues are being fully disclosed to their clients. There will always be, though, these new issues that come up because it is a it is an industry that's changing over time, 
and their relationships with their clients and how they make their money, all of that changes over time. And as it changes, the underlying issues really will change with it. So for example, and I, one of the big things that has come up in the last few years are ESG related products and investments. And ESG was really an area where there was both an opportunity seen by the asset management industry to offer services and products that had a hint of ESG, but also there was a lot of client and investor demand in the ESG space. And so they were having to answer a lot of questions regarding what their ESG practices were. So when you have that come up, you will have, as the new products are coming up, the new services are coming up, new disclosures are being made, are those being accurate? Firms are trying to get maybe ahead of their competitors and offering these types of products that are in high demand. So that can be a new priority that will come up as time changes. And then as well, as new rules come out. And obviously we've seen with this particular commission, there is a high volume of rulemaking going on. And as new rules come out, such as Reg BI or the marketing rule and things like that, then you will get a lot more enforcement in those spaces. Oh, that's great. That's one reg BI for the record. I also like this. I like this idea. You know, I'll take a large cap ETF with just a hint of ESG. That, that's amazing. Sprinkling I think we're going to hear more ESG about that later. Top. Just a dab. Well, Dabney, we talked a little bit about your accomplishments in your long career, both with the SEC and elsewhere. But I'm interested if there are a couple of things you're focused on as being particularly proud of at your time with the commission. I think there's a lot that I'm proud of. Overall, I'm very proud of being part of the Asset Management Unit. I was part of that since it was formed in 2010. And overall, as being part of that unit, I really was very proud of the fact that we were able, we were willing to take on complicated cases, but also cases that, while they may not have seemed complicated on their face, had a lot of impact for the industry and for their clients. What I also appreciated is how we approached those cases overall and to get to the right result. The goal being that we want the result that is best for the clients to serve what they were supposed to be getting, as well as make it clear in how we drafted settled orders and things of that nature to make sure that we weren't creating confusion within the industry. It was really taking a moment to make sure that we were thinking about how would this case be interpreted by the industry to make sure that they could serve their clients consistent with their obligations and to really avoid any sort of questions being caused by the cases themselves. Orders can, are, they're negotiated when they're settled orders, they're negotiated with the other side and it can be a lot of push and pull but it's always trying to make sure that the message that you're sending adds clarity and doesn't create confusion. All right, so we wanna dig in on one of the topics we mentioned up top, and that has to do with some of the text messages, the WhatsApps, things like that, right? Off-channel communications, I think they've been described. This is one of the big talking points, I think, in the industry right now for investment advisors and for private funds. And for good reason. Last September, we saw an SEC enforcement action against 16 broker dealers and an affiliated investment advisor for alleged failures by the firms and their employees to maintain and preserve electronic communications. Those firms paid collectively 1.1 billion, with a B, billion dollars to settle those charges, which, as you can imagine, got 
the attention of the market more broadly. Now, that's not the only thing. It's been reported pretty widely that the enforcement division is undertaking a sweep of investment advisors to better understand their practices around off-channel communications. And a few weeks ago, the SEC's Division of Examinations released its annual exam priorities letter, which included a focus on record keeping and supervisory programs related to business-related electronic communications. I would also note that just about a week ago, Bloomberg reported that, quote, corporate compliance chiefs and general counsel are bombarding outside attorneys with questions about how to design a policy to retain employee messaging on encrypted software, end quote. Dabney, I'm sure that you would agree with that. But before we get to some of the things that you're actually seeing or maybe talking to clients about, I mean, this seems like a, a, a big deal. But first, people are always talking about off-channel communications. What does that mean or what does that include? I think that's a great first question, because when you look at the SEC orders, the settled orders that were issued, how they defined it was that it was when employees are using their personal devices to communicate internally and externally by personal text messages or other text messaging platforms such as WhatsApp. That's how the SEC defined it in the settled orders that came out in September. I don't think that's actually what off-channel communications and how we're referring to it now when we talk to clients and when clients are talking about their concerns. The concern really are the written communications that are taking place outside a firm's document retention program. So if a firm can capture text messages, that's not really an off-channel communication. So it's really the off-channel communications are supposed to be those communications, those written communications outside the record firm's record keeping platform. And that's how I think of it. And that's how I believe everyone is using the term off-channel communications. I mean, that's fairly broad. And I would imagine actually the communications themselves can capture all kinds of chatter, right? Maybe I'm actually friends with my client and I'm texting him about our tennis match this weekend. Maybe I am actually sending some investment advice. We might think about that differently. Maybe I'm doing something super fraudulent and I'm trying to hide it, right? But I guess my question is, why, I mean, why are the regulators so concerned about this? They seem to really be focusing on it. So what's the issue? Well, generally what I think they would say is that they were enforcing the rules that are currently on the SEC's books. So those rules relate to document retention requirements that were originally passed decades ago. And this was what I'm talking about when written communications were all via typewriter with mimeograph machines making copies. And that's what I'm talking about. Like that's how old these rules are. Making a written communication was something that was not done as an everyday occurrence as part of casual conversation, which in this day and age, it is. You will send a text message when instead of picking up the phone and making a phone call. But the SE still has these rules on their books and they want to make sure people are following them. The broker and dealer rules are a little bit more broad than the investment advisor rules. And we can get into that a little bit later. But the idea here is that the books and records requirements is really so that 
when the examination program that has the right to examine these regulated entities, such as brokers and investment advisors, go in, that they can demand certain required books and records and look at them. And that if these are off-channel communications aren't being captured by the firm's document retention system, that the firm is not then producing those items or even able to produce those items should the staff be requesting them. And as we have learned, or at least I have learned over the three years here with the Insecurities Podcast, Abney, the devil is always in the details, right? Kurt walked through a couple of hypothetical examples of obviously doing fraud with an off-channel communication as might be pretty clear cut versus some other discussion about tennis. But when you're attempting to respond or comply with these rules, what is the standard and what do they require when it comes to, to record keeping for on and off-channel communications? So the rules are different for brokers and investment advisors. For brokers, it's a fairly broad requirement to keep all of your business communications. For investment advisors, it's very different. And so with investment advisors, it's a list. And the list has grown over the years as the SEC adopts new rules. And in connection with adopting those new rules, also adds to the required books and records. So for example, the books and records requirement against the loan investment advisor that was part of the charges in September was about keeping books and records relating to investment advice that you're providing to your client. That was passed again many decades ago. And again, the list has grown over time as to what an advisor has to keep. For example, with the marketing rule that just went into effect in November of 2022, there were additions made to the doc, the books and records that an investment advisor has to maintain. So that's the difference between the two, the brokers and the investment advisors on what they have to maintain. And that with respect to the cases that the SEC may be considering against investment advisors right now, that's really kind of going to be the rub is whether or not they have failed to maintain documents or communications that fall within the categories enumerated in the rule that applies to investment advisors. I get I hear a lot about document retention policies when it comes to conducting internal investigations, especially when it comes to accounting and financial information. And one of the issues that folks who maybe don't play in this space a lot don't understand is that the the sheer volume of information that's created and identified and God forbid recorded on a daily basis at an average size business is astronomical. So there are some logistical issues, right, when it comes to attempting to comply versus getting all of Kurt's text messages about how good Chelsea is doing or not doing right now in the English Premier League. So there, there are some real kind of definitional or some, like I said, logistical limitations to just kind of a catch-all. But Dabney, you've been out of the SEC here for almost a year now. What kind of questions are clients bringing to you? Are they focused on kind of how do we create a program that gets everything? Or do we have a little bit more detail there in in how those discussions are going. Sure, and in talking about the clients who have not been contacted mm. by the SEC regarding these issues, a lot of firms are really trying to figure out what they're supposed to be doing at this point. What is my program supposed to look like? Can I have, can people have personal devices? Do I have to issue phones to everyone that, from the firm instead? Can people text? How do I monitor when people text? There's a lot of concern that people can't serve their clients properly because they don't have the ability to text anymore. 
So it, there is a lot of concern. There's a lot of concern also, like, what if I do get that ask from the SEC? What am I going to do at that point? So a lot of firms are really taking note of the orders. But at this point, with a lot of silence from the SEC since September and more just enforcement leading the charge on looking into these issues, it's creating more questions than it is answers at this point. Yeah, I think there is there's a great deal of uncertainty in the industry about how they should be treating this particular problem. And me, I know I've been on a couple client calls with you where some of these questions are getting kicked around. And I'm always impressed with how thoughtfully you you approach the client's questions, right? Because not everyone is exactly the same. They don't have the same compliance framework. They don't, maybe they're not the same size firm. They have different policies with respect to personal devices, right? But if we kind of just think high level, are there any best practices or tips that you would float out there for firms that are thinking about this? And I'll start with my favorite one. You should call Dabney. That's my number one tip. But beyond that, any best practices that you would float for folks who are listening? Sure. There's a lot to think about here. First is really to come up with a system that you feel is defensible to the SEC, given the current posture of how things are. The requirement is that you have policies and procedures that are reasonable, you want to have and procedures that you can implement, and that you have to make best efforts to retain the required books and records. Now, striving for any system of perfection is not going to be attainable. And if that is what the SEC enforcement group is going to demand is perfection, I think that there are a lot of things that are going to be problematic for the industry in that. I'm not familiar with perfection being the standard, but if that really is the standard that the staff is going to try and impose, that's going to be a new challenge. But So what I try and tell people is, let's look at your program, let's make it defensible to the SEC so we can show them that you were thoughtful about how you came up with your program so that you could have the communications that you need to be able to have to best serve your clients and that you are making taking all reasonable steps to preserve the records and meet your regulatory obligations. So the first question I encourage firms to ask themselves is what means of communication do they actually need to have to best serve their clients? If your clients communicate more effectively with you through certain text messaging systems, then you probably, in order to serve them best, need to figure out a way to try and have those text messaging capabilities. If, for example, you're a venture capital fund and you're invested in a lot of startups and all of the CEOs and presidents and people running those companies will only use certain types of texting or messaging systems, then to best serve your clients, which are the funds and the investors in those funds, you will probably need to have those means of communication. Now, you need to also figure out to what extent do you need it? Do only certain people need to have access to certain forms of communication? And if they have access and they need access to that form of communication, how do you then capture it? So first, again, is just to figure out what types of communications do you need to best serve your clients? And then I suggest that firms take a look at those orders, the settled orders from September and really look at what some of the undertakings there so that 
if the SEC ever does approach you about your program, you can explain, we did everything that was in the orders for looking forward. And that would include reassessing what your program is. Those undertakings really didn't say you can't use personal devices. In fact, it kind of anticipated you would use personal devices and how some of them were written. So I don't think anything is completely off the table. I think you just have to think about what you need and how you can make it work and then go through the checklist of items. I do think that there were two items in there that you should probably really have in your program or you should have a really good reason for not having in your program. And those were training and the periodic certifications. Those were two things that they specifically required in the undertakings. And so absent a really compelling reason, you probably want to have those in your program. And beyond that, it's really just otherwise making sure you have something that's highly defensible. Again, you can't have something that's perfect, and I'm not going to say that's going to keep you from having an SEC investigation and the staff because they found five off-channel communications you didn't capture. They're going to want some eight-figure penalty from you. But there is when you have to really think about where the line is that you're willing or where you're willing to go with the SEC staff. Because from my perspective and based on my experience, The relief that they're getting and the relief that they're trying to get from investment advisors right now is not necessarily relief that they would obtain if they actually had to litigate the cases. So those are there are pressure points to make with the staff in terms of because they have to think about these litigation risks. And so you really just want to position yourself that you want to look like the least appealing person to potentially charge in these types of cases. I guess that would be what, the fastest gazelle or is that the slowest gazelle too, just not an attractive gazelle? I want to jump in quick, Dabney, with a question. Do you think that there'll be some delineation between before and after September of 22 in terms of ongoing negotiations between, say, businesses that have had an issue with their ephemeral messaging or off-channel communications now that settlement was made public in September? Kind of, hey, did you get your shop in order before we made a big deal out of this? Or or did you wait until after? Or God forbid, did you not fix anything, even though we made it well known that this was going to be an issue? I definitely think that could be factored in to the amount of the penalties. It's not clear to me that's really going to be the difference between bringing Mm -hmm. a case and not bringing a case, as opposed to what the relief is and what the penalty may be, may factor that in. I do think, I think it would have made sense for the SEC under these circumstances to send that message with those 16 cases. I'm not going to question them in deciding to bring those particular 16 cases and what they put, made their findings, because they, they do seem to be more in line with where conduct, there were There was a lot of communications going on, who was doing the off-channel communications, how many years that they had been subject to SEC subpoena. There was information in there, but I feel like now they've sent the message. And I feel like the staff has really sent that message. The advisory community is really listening to it. And there's an opportunity here for the SEC to even give more guidance so that firms can comply. Because at this point, that's what I'm seeing. Firms want to figure out how to do this while serving their clients. And they're really a little bit at a loss of what they can do that would satisfy the SEC at this point. So given that there is no quantifiable harm in these cases, there was no disgorgement ordered, there, none of the penalties were put into a distribution fund to pay anybody back, 
this isn't a situation where a lot of clients were harmed, that this was a really good opportunity for the SEC to use its discretion to send the message. And after they sent the message to give additional guidance to, to the extent firms were asking for it, and then to use their examination program in the years going forward to really kick the tires and make sure that firms had made any adjustments that were necessary to being made. And it's not clear to me that they've ch chosen that path. Yeah, Dabney, I wanted to underscore something you said sort of at the beginning and again at the end when we asked you for some practical tips. And it's this idea that perfect compliance may not be possible and it certainly shouldn't be the standard, but rather firms should be working toward a reasonable, defensible type of compliance framework where maybe I think you said, look, you missed five text messages from one employee, or maybe you actually have someone who's out there with burner phones actively engaged in some kind of misconduct, right? You can't be expected to capture that every single time. But I guess what I would like to ask you and sort of put your SEC hat back on for a minute is how does the staff respond to those kinds of arguments, right? If I went in and said, here's what my compliance co program looks like next to the undertakings from the from these enforcement actions. I mean, does that message resonate, do you think, with the staff? I think it can resonate with the staff on a certain level, but the staff varies within the division of enforcement. And some of them may feel like they've heard that argument over and over again, because pretty much every firm will make that argument at some point. But I think you really have <laughs> to have something there to back it up, to walk them through all of these things that you did proactively, because that's really how you would present it to a fact finder as well. And I think if you can make that argument, like here are the proactive things I did, I didn't just wait for you to tell me what to do. These are the things I affirmatively went and did. I think that puts you into a much better position with the staff. Whether or not they will listen to it in the end, that may be one thing, but you will certainly get more traction with senior leadership within the division of enforcement who really have to think about, do we want to litigate these things? What is our litigation risk here? And also, how does this look overall? Because if you really did take affirmative steps and the SEC comes to you and wants you to settle, and you agree to settle with them, then your order should reflect what really happened. And so it's fair for you to say, well, I did X, Y, and Z. Other firms didn't do X, Y, and Z. I think my order needs to reflect that that's what I did out of fairness. And do they really want that type of order out there that shows some astronomical penalty, even though a firm really did take a lot of affirmative steps to do what they need to do? And the risk the SEC has here if they push this too far with eight, nine figure penalties against firms for this kind of issue, especially if they can't really point to a lot of exacerbating factors, is that firms will just throw up their hands and give up. They are going to have the exact opposite message sent from the 16 cases that they filed in September, which was everybody look at this and don't look like these firms, Whereas they're going to say, what's the point of even trying and investing $10 million in my compliance program if I'm if we miss a small number, relatively small number of communications that are required to retain and we're going to get hit with a big penalty anyways. Yeah, that would be an unfortunate and unintended consequence. I completely agree with you, especially I know folks in compliance roles at a lot of these firms are always looking 
for more resources. And if the impact was to have fewer resources, I feel like that's definitely going in the wrong direction. Okay, so let's put a pin in the off-channel communications for a minute because while we're here, we want to pick your brain. Oh, Kurt, on a come on, of we could have taken topics. that offline well, or over to WhatsApp. No, oh, no, we want to do that. Oh Sorry. no, we're gonna have to cut yep. that. We're gonna have to cut that. One of the things that we want to talk to you about while we've got you is the marketing rule. And I know this is another topic that you've been getting some calls about. Back in December 2020, the commission adopted amendments to Rule 2064-1, which many of our listeners will know as the marketing rule. The rule covers a lot of ground, advertising, solicitation, the use of performance metrics. And after the amendments, there has been a lot of confusion, I think, about how those rules apply. And in fact, the SEC or the staff released a couple of months ago, I guess, some FAQs going over just how some of those amendments are supposed to work in practice. So if you could just tee up for us some of the key issues or the potential stumbling blocks that you see in the amended marketing rule, I think that would be helpful. It was a really large revision to what had been out there in the advertising rule previously. So I will agree that it is a very big change. I will acknowledge that this is one of those rules that I worked on when I was at the SEC, but I recognize that this is a really big change. It really was trying to put everything into one place, but when you put everything into one place, it looks really long. The other thing is though, it did add several prohibitions that had not been part of the advertising rule, which is where I think there can be some issues for firms. This is not just false or misleading statements. It goes well beyond that in making sure that performance is presented in a certain way. It has three provisions that are specifically what I refer to as the fair and balanced provisions in that making sure that in certain types of information is presented in a fair and balanced way, such as if you give an example of an investment recommendation or you describe the benefits, you need to do that in a fair and balanced way of also with a benefit explaining the downsides, if there are any downsides of something. So with those seven prohibitions, there's also the issue with respect to making any statements from which someone could infer something that was misleading. So again, this is really broad language. The other thing that I will flag and that I try and flag for people on a regular basis is that we are talking about the four corners of the particular advertisement. We are not talking about being able to cite to another document to clarify or to add color to what you're saying. It has to be fair and balanced and not misleading within the four corners of the particular advertisement. So really trying to make sure that you're being careful there as well. It's actually really unfortunate. We were going to go with fair and balanced for our tagline here on this show. And it was taken by the marketing rule naturally. So we got stuck. And with you're neither and fair nor balanced um, towards accountants, Kurt. So I don't think it fit anyways, but. <laughs> no, that's my love for accountants. <laughs> Never is just unabashed. And, uh, yeah, exactly. All right. So this rule has been out there for a while now. I mean, I, as you said, there, there continue to be some issues where I think maybe people are a little confused or getting hung up on, but we're maybe getting to the place where this rule is old enough or the amendments are old enough now that we could be thinking about enforcement. So what do you see as some of the key enforcement risks with respect to this revived or renewed rule? On timing, it's really an interesting question when there will be an enforcement matter, because for me, 
I can foresee it being sooner rather than later. So for example, in Reg BI, you had a long rollout period of time where the SEC issued a lot of FAQs. There was an exam alert issued by the exam program when they went out and examined on these issues. And then it took a while for the first Reg BI or the form CRS cases to really come out of that. I hope we see something similar with the marketing rule. Exam did note in September and again when they issued their yearly priorities that they would be prioritizing marketing rule issues at their exams. So I'm hopeful that they will come out with an exam alert that provides additional guidance. Well, let me correct that, not guidance, but an exam alert that generally shows what they see as good things that people are doing and some problematic practices so that people can really try and make a shift. And then after that, really then maybe moving on to the enforcement cases. So really giving the industry an opportunity to absorb all of the guidance that they possibly can or all of the information they possibly can about how to comply with this new rule. With that said, where I can see enforcement perhaps making a toehold at this point is whether or not you have backup for the statements of fact that you make in your advertisements. That is a new requirement that you be able to back it up if the staff asks you that you had a reasonable basis to make the statement of fact so what I'm seeing firms, a lot of firms do is where they say a statement of fact in an advertising piece is that they're then either adding a footnote to the version that they send out to people or they're keeping a copy that has footnotes in it so that if the staff ever asks, they can just whip it out and give it to them and they're done. They're not going back and scrambling. Now, that isn't a requirement of the rule that it be contemporaneous, but it really does make your life much easier because the exam program is definitely going to be asking you about your ability to back up statements of fact that you make in your advertisements. The other area that I think has potential enforcement interest is where the marketing issue may impact multiple priorities. So if you have, for example, a private fund that is marketing a private fund, and it includes three pages about their ESG practices. You have just hit the trifecta of priorities for the exam program and for the commission. You have the marketing rule, you have private funds, and you have ESG. And if I was still at the SEC, I would be like, I just hit three priorities with one case. And if there really is a problem there, then this would be a really great message case to send out. So I think to the extent that you fall into multiple categories, then you are likely to have more issues. So for example, if you are a private fund marketing crypto, I think you've hit a different trifecta, but it's still a problem. So that is where I really take a fine tooth comb through your marketing materials to really make sure that you are in compliance. Kurt, I don't remember when we were at the SEC a couple of weeks ago, but I think I faintly heard the sounds of a gaming floor where there were slot machines lining up these different priorities for cases. But I can't confirm that. I can't confirm that. But it sounds like there may be some. Just, just <laughs> spin the wheel and you, you go for whatever it hits. Out, of yeah. course. Yeah, there's a lot of crypto wheels out there. But, Dabney, we kind of buried the lead up front, too, in that not only do we have someone with such an illustrious career as you on our podcast, we have an, a verifiable ESG celebrity 
as you were a member of the SEC's Enforcement Division's Climate and ESG Task Force, and you advised on the proposed ESG disclosure rule for investment advisors and investment companies. So uh, definitely great. We'll do the autograph session after our recording here. But we do want to jump into that ESG discussion, right? It is all over the news. It continues to be a focus for those, especially in the advisor and the and the private fund space. So talk to us about the landscape, how you see it now, and maybe some lessons learned from your time with the commission. Sure. Now, I will say when I became co-chief to the asset management unit in 2016, I had no idea ESG would become such a big issue that, again, it is reflective of the industry changes, the interest change, what the clients and the investors want changes over time. So it really is not something I would have foreseen in 2016, but that's where we got to in 2020, 2021 and 2022. So the task force was announced in 2021, and it's a Division of Enforcement-specific task force. And it was looking both on the public company side, as well as what was going on on the investment advisor side. So you had a hard look using the current statutes and rules that are in place to look at whether or not there were any issues regarding ESG. And there already are rules on the books preventing fraud or misleading investors or your clients. And so to the extent that there were issues there, that became a basis on which the division of enforcement could look at particular issues. So one big problem was that as there was this high demand for ESG related products, it seemed to be some firms got a little ahead of themselves in offering those products before they really had the compliance programs in place to do what they were promising they were going to be able to do in terms of doing the ESG assessments and things of that nature. And so over the 2022 year, we saw several cases that came out of the SEC. They were all settled that the SEC considers to be ESG related And there are cases, one of them was a fraud case where there were allegations of violations of negligence-based fraud. And then two others were standalone kind of compliance-based issues with respect to the ESG issues. So it really shows to me that the commission takes, is going to take a pretty hard line regarding the marketing or the selling of ESG What's notable there is those three cases, all of them predate the effective date of the marketing rule. And so now you have this whole other avenue for the SEC to look at for enforcement purposes regarding ESG-related issues that they didn't have when that task force was first announced and they didn't have when those three cases were brought last year. ESG is being explored across a lot of different ideas, right? We're dealing with that in the accounting world as well, about what information qualifies as ESG. How do you verify or, God forbid, audit statements around ESG that are maybe new to public filings or potentially going out on a limb for some of these businesses? You mentioned some of the actions that have come out yet, but I think the ESG space is kind of light on the enforcement world to date. Do you think that this changing tide is really going to make for some of those messaging cases coming in the short term, or will we just have to wait and see? I think we'll have to wait and see, honestly. I do, again, think the marketing rule is really one big avenue that has yet to be explored in terms of it opens up private funds in particular to ESG-related cases because so much counts as an advertisement. In that rule, it made clear that if you cut and paste answers to questions for due diligence questionnaires that 
investors are asking for, that counts as an advertisement. And all these investors are asking questions regarding what is what you know, what are your ESG practices, what are your intentions. So there's a large volume of what qualifies as an advertisement now that perhaps didn't qualify before. And it really is since there are so many questions being asked, that's really where I do see the most exposure for firms is really trying to make sure that they have everything aligned. I think the SEC kind of foresaw that in their release regarding the ESG-related rules last spring. They specifically mentioned the marketing rule that was coming online and what that could do in terms of making sure firms are being accurate with how they market their ESG products. Now, that only applies at the marketing stage. It doesn't apply going forward. But again, I do think that creates a lot of exposure for firms. Chris, we asked Commissioner Allison, now former Commissioner Allison Heronley, a similar question way back in episode 54, December 2021. When is the ESG enforcement coming? We got a version of the same answer from her. So the wait continues. Holding our breath. It'll be like a a holiday morning (laughs) with the presents wrapped. That's Not right. <laughs> for someone, but anyway. Okay, so we got one more big topic for you, Dabney, while you're here. We've talked a couple of times about some of the work that comes out of the Division of Examinations. We talked about their exam priority letters. You mentioned a few minutes ago that you would like to see an alert or some kind of statement from the exams division about the marketing rule, maybe just to help folks understand a bit better what's going on there. There, But the exams division has released its priorities letter for the 2023 exam cycle. And I know you've looked at it and maybe picked out some things that you think are particularly interesting and that you think investment advisors or broker dealers should be thinking about this year. So do you want to flag a couple of those issues for our listeners? Sure. So probably not new would be ESG, cybersecurity, and the marketing rule. None of that was a surprise that marketing rule was the first item. Private funds, probably not a surprise, but it really did get quite a bit of attention and was flagged as a pretty significant area that they were going to look at. I will, again, I'm kind of beating this marketing rule drum. The marketing rule not only got its own priority, but it was also mentioned again as a priority within the private funds. So it was mentioned twice. So I think that is notable that they mentioned it twice. A few other things that really caught my eye, but that really haven't gotten a ton of attention is under just the general priorities for investment advisors, that general category. There was kind of a throwaway about hedge clauses and looking for hedge clauses, which are disavowing kind of the requirement that you act consistent with your fiduciary duty and putting that into contracts. There was a case regarding hedge clauses brought by the commission I believe in early 2022 called comprehensive capital management. And there is just one line in the 2023 exam priorities talking about looking for hedge clauses. So that kind of caught my eye. I was wondering why that was there and it really wasn't discussed beyond that. And then the other item to for firms to really think about is they talked about other sources of revenue for investment advisors. And the one example they gave of other sources of revenue that they were going to look at was bank deposit suite programs. And I think that is something else that firms would be well advised to take a look at, especially as interest rates have risen significantly over the last year is really making sure that they are reviewing 
their cash suite programs for their advisory clients and making sure that they are in something that is appropriate for them in terms of the interest rates that are available now. So for example, the commission has brought cases where clients were put in cash suite products that earned notably less interest and the advisor in exchange for that got revenue themselves. And so really, this, since that is the one revenue source that they specifically flagged in their priorities, that's All right. Well, Dabney, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. I really enjoyed the conversation and appreciate some of the insights that you shared with our listeners, including some of those deep cuts that you pulled out of the exam priorities letter. It's really good to talk to you and to just learn a little bit about how you see this space and some of the things that listeners and your clients should be thinking about. Thank you both for having me. It was really great. I love talking about these issues. As you can tell, I can go on and on about this stuff. I know that it's what a lot of people are thinking about right now, and I really appreciate the time. Thank you. Uh, like our other guests, if you promise you could keep going, we will have you on again for another episode. So look forward <laughs> Only to that. Only for 100. Only for 100. Will Only I for 100. <laughs> oh, we love it. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. And a special thanks to our guest, Dabney O'Reardon of Quinn Emanuel. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at CPA, And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.